0: As our other campuses and venues join us now, we've spent three weeks talking about God and his grace toward you. We're going to wrap up the series today by talking about what you can now do with that grace in your interactions with others. And though there are lots of things you can do, you can share Jesus with them, you can serve them, you can forgive them, there's a topic we don't talk very often about, and it's the one I want to talk about today. So. Hang on to your seat, you're in for quite a ride. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for our times of worship here and at the venue and chapel, Northridge and Cactus. And I pray that as we all now gather for our time in your word that you might speak to us by the power and illumination of your Holy Spirit. And I pray God that as we talk about this topic that that many of us are very familiar with but don't probably give uh, enough airtime in our lives And enough activity in our lives. God, would you change that today in us? That's my prayer. By the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So let me ask you, what is one of the most profound times in your life in which you have experienced compassion and or mercy from another person? It will be helpful for you to get that in your mind right now. You might not have a lot of them. We'll talk about that today and why that's so. But try to think of a time in which somebody has showed you compassion and or mercy in your life. A time that maybe you could never forget. I only have a few times myself, at least on a big level. Most of them occurred with my wife, and I'm not kidding, Uh, they have. But one of the times I was thinking about this week uh, occurred in the late 80s, early 1990s when I went into my first pastorate in Detroit. I've shared this with you guys before, and it's hard for some of you to imagine, but 30 years ago when I started out in full-time ministry, I I had a lot of anxiety, anxiety, and a lot of depression, a lot of insecurity, and extremely low self-image for a myriad of reasons. And one of the results of that is that I was terrified to speak in public. Not a good thing for a pastor who's going in to teach. I just Every time I thought about having to speak in public, every time I had to, and I don't mean to gross you out, I would literally lose my lunch. I just would. It was that much of a fear for me. And I remember interviewing at this church in Detroit and I knew that part of the candidating process, even though it was only for an associate pastor position, is that I would have to speak in front of a Sunday school class. Only about 80 to 90 people, they were combining all the classes for this church, but I was terrified. I was staying at some guy's house in Gross Point, Michigan as I was candidating that weekend and I woke up at five, my heart was racing, I couldn't get back to bed. So I decided to walk the neighborhood, beautiful neighborhood. I mean, like the equivalent of Troon, you know, for Detroit. So I'm walking in this neighborhood there and you guessed it, about 5.30, I'm seen, you know, leaning over a tree, just throwing up my dinner from the night before, just terrified having to speak. I got through that event and I shared with the elders and the board and the pastor all my anxieties and fears and, and and an incredible move of mercy and kindness believing in this fearful young pastor. They hired me. They hired me to be their associate pastor. I remember asking my senior pastor one day, why did you hire me? I mean, I was a veritable mess. I ended up being there nine years. He said, we saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself at that time, a calling, a kindling of God inside of you and his Holy Spirit. And even though you had all these anxieties and fears, we saw what you didn't see and we thought it'd be good to bring you on. I spoke there an average of six times a year in the pulpit. My wife, after four or five years, said to me, you're one of the bravest men I've ever met. Because every single time you have to speak, it's a drama to no end, and and, and yet you show the courage to do it. But if it wasn't for the mercy and the kindness and the grace shown to me, by my very first church, who literally became a healing place for me, I would not be the pastor that I am for you today. (laughs) One of the reasons I was so terrified to speak back then is I cared deeply what people thought of me way too much. One of the reasons that I don't have fear today is that I don't care anymore what you think (laughs) of me. And in all seriousness, yep, you can clap at that. In all seriousness, as for another subject, that allows me to love you even more. Amen? Because when we care too much what other people think of us, we aren't really loving them. We're thinking about us. And when you finally get over caring about that, you can truly love other people, as I love many of you today. My guess is, all of you today, my guess is... (laughs) That each of us here today could tell a story in which we have received some sort of life-altering mercy or kindness from another person. Maybe not that many, and we'll get to that in a second here, but I'm guessing that all of us have one story or two. It's profound when someone shows real mercy. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a deep dive in this topic of mercy. And like we did a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to read you a story, one of Jesus's stories that he told while on this earth about mercy. This is one of his parables. A parable is a fictitious story, a fictional story with a very real truth behind it. And so as I read this story to you, I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I'd ask you not to open up your phones or Bibles. You can if you want to. I mean, you're free to do that. But as Jesus originally told these stories, people just listened. And so it might be good to recreate that environment and just listen to this story that Jesus told. It's called the the parable or the story of of the unforgiving servant. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he began the settlement and he came to a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold and this man was brought to him. But this man couldn't pay what was owed and so the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I promise I will pay back everything. The servant's master, the king, took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Then that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a much less sum, about a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I promise I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their king everything that had happened. Then the king called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to do it. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Whoa. You know, we tend to think of Jesus as this kind, loving, meek, and mild savior, which at times he is, but at other times, as C.S. Lewis writes about, he's a lion who is roaring into our lives. And this is one of those stories in which he roars. Now, obviously, this story teaches us a clear lesson about grace and mercy that God has shown in our lives. I hope you caught that lesson. He has forgiven us the great debt of our sin and in Christ has now brought us to him and set us free But then it's a lesson on how we need to show great mercy in our daily interactions with those who have offended or hurt us. In other words, we need to pass on grace through compassion and mercy to those around us. So let's go deeper into this topic of mercy today. And as I do quite often, I wanna begin by getting us all on the same page and defining the term before us. Because as you're going to see as we go along today, there's a lot of things, you're going to love this, that you and I call mercy in our lives that technically I'm going to show you is not. You'll see that as we go along this morning. So let's begin by coming up with a very clear biblical definition of mercy so that we are rallying around the same thing. And here would be a good one for my understanding of the Bible. And that is that mercy is an act of kindness often undeserved. Mercy is an act of kindness, often undeserved. And folks, when you look closely at the story that Jesus tells us here, this is precisely how he postures mercy. You see, when the king in Jesus's story uh, does something toward this servant who can't pay the debt, we'd all agree it's an act of unparalleled kindness and totally undeserved. He forgives an outstanding debt that could not possibly be repaid. And yet what the servant then does is go on and refuse to show mercy or kindness on a on a similar debt that also couldn't be repaid. So one player deals an act of undeserved kindness, the other opts for justice. But simply note, it all centers around kindness as opposed to justice. That's Mercy. And so, going back to my opening story here, Justice, honestly, I've thought about this a lot over the years. Justice would have said, Look, kid, we're glad that you want to work at our church here in Detroit, but you can't even speak without throwing up your dinner. You have this anxiety disorder that's going to take years of therapy to work through that probably stems back to your childhood, which in Indeed, it did. And so we love you, but really, we can't hire you for our church. We got things to do and places to go. That would have been justice. Kindness and mercy says, let's give this young, burgeoning pastor filled with a lot of difficult issues a chance and help him heal because God just might have a plan for him someday. And you see, that's mercy as opposed to justice. Don't ever forget this. It's core to Jesus's story. Mercy is an act of kindness, often undeserved. Now, let's move on. With this understanding of mercy, I want to look further at this amazing story of Jesus's and learn how to pass grace on. And to accomplish this, I want you to notice with me three ingredients of mercy. Three key components of mercy, without which you don't really have mercy. And the first one is powerful because it hits us right where we live and becomes the initial barometer of whether or not we are truly showing mercy. And you're gonna like this. And it's this, that mercy assumes some sort of sin, pain, and or need. Without which, as you'll see in a minute, it's not really mercy. Mercy assumes sin, pain and or need. So look at verse 25 of our story and you will start to get this. We're at the point in the story where Jesus describes the economic situation of the servant who owed the king money. And very simply, it's easy to miss. Notice how Jesus says it. He says, "But since he, the servant, did not have the means to repay the king. He did not have the means to repay don't miss this. It's important to mercy. The man had a deficit that clearly demonstrated at least a need, if not a sin in his life. I mean, Bible experts point out here that we don't know why the man was unable to repay the debt. All we know is that he owed the king money. And here is what Jesus is making clear. It was a huge amount of money. I mean, think about it. In the NIV, which I read earlier, it's ten thousand bags of gold. I mean, back then that was just—I mean—an astronomical amount of money, billions of dollars today. And so it's almost hyperbolic when Jesus, you know, uses that amount of money in the in the story here. Some commentators point out that 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 refers to the sin aspect of this, meaning that there's no way a servant would ever been have whatever been lent that kind of money by a king he would have had to have embezzled it or stolen it so at the very least there's a need here owing amount of money that you can't pay back which some of us can relate to we've been there at the very worst there's sin involved here we don't know all we do know is that mercy only became mercy when it ran smack dab into the center of need pain or even possibly sin. Mercy assumes sin, pain, and or need, without which it's not mercy. Really quickly over the years, I've done a lot of study on mercy. You'll hear why in a minute, because I'm not very good at it, (laughs) even though I've been shown it. And there's five different Greek words in the New Testament that we translate into the English, mercy. And as I've looked up every single occurrence of mercy in the original Greek New Testament, you know what's interesting? I can't find one instance in which mercy was shown where there was not also a corresponding sin hurt or need. If you don't have a sin hurt or need, you don't have mercy. And somebody's saying, right now, well you keep beating this to death. Why is that a big deal? Here's why. There are times today when you and I show kindness or even courtesy to others around us, but it doesn't really meet a need, a sin, or a painful thing in their lives, and we think we're being merciful. You need to repent of that today and call mercy what it is. Here's some examples. You go to a restaurant today after church or sometime this week, you're served a good meal. The waiter does a fairly good, if not a good job. When you're tallying up the bill, you will give a what? A tip usually 15, hopefully 20, maybe even 25%. Here's what you need to know. That's a courtesy in today's culture. That's something expected of you that you should do if the waiter does a good job. That is not mercy. You're not being merciful by giving the waiter a tip. Some of you feel you are. Repent of that today. (laughs) You're being courteous, which is a good thing to do, but that's different than mercy. Or how about this one? You say hi to someone in the hallway. That's a nice courtesy, but it's not mercy. Or how about when you're nice to your kids on a daily level? Or you ask your spouse how his or her day was? Again, that's a nice courtesy. That's not mercy. Think about it. Life is filled with plenty of relational interactions, even obligations, courtesies that we show to those around us, and we should do these. But don't confuse that with mercy. Don't cheapen mercy with that. Mercy is being a nice person, is being kind when you're meeting them in a moment of profound pain, sin toward you or others, or some type of need that they have, without which you're just being nice and courteous. Now, as I say quite often, we're just ramping up because there's a second thing that Jesus reveals to us here that distinguishes genuine mercy from the fake stuff. And this one is huge to me. And you'll see why in a minute, because I, I, I wrestle with this, I resonate this with this, and it was an eye-opener to me years ago. And that is that Jesus shows us that compassion is a feeling and a good feeling, but mercy is an action. In other words, what you're gonna see right now in living color is that there's a discernible difference between compassion and mercy. One's a feeling that you have, one is an action that you show. And so once again, let's look at our story. This time at verse 27, Jesus is talking about the king and what the king feels and does for the servant. And you're gonna see it now in living color. Jesus says this, and the Lord, the king of that servant, felt compassion, and released him and forgave him of the debt. So there it is. Two things are going on here. The king felt something, and that was compassion, but then he acted on the compassion and released him and forgave him. And you're saying, where does it say mercy? Look at verse 33. In verse 33, when he's indicting the servant for not doing the same, the king says, should you also not have had, say it with me, mercy on your fellow servant in the same way that I had mercy on you. I've looked it up in the Greek, two different words, one mercy, one compassion, and they mean two different things. One is a feeling that you and I have in our lives, and the other is an action that usually follows up on that feeling. And what you need to know is that they are two very different things, even though they might play off of one another. And here's the point. There are many times, tell me if this isn't true, that you and I feel compassionate about things and people around us, but for a myriad of reasons, we don't respond with corollary action, we do nothing And what you need to know is that though it was good that you felt compassion, and even for some of you, it's a really good start, the reality is, is that when you didn't show mercy, when you didn't act upon it, you were by definition merciless at that time. So it's possible to feel something in your heart, not do a thing about it, and God says, you're a rather merciless person. And if you say to him, but I felt compassionate, Lord, he'd say, You don't understand. Jamie already told you. Jesus already told you. Those are two different things. And I'm glad you felt that, but it's better that you should have acted upon it. And so we see a homeless person on the corner. We feel bad for them, but you don't stop. You don't give any help. There's no mercy in that. Compassion maybe, but don't see yourself as merciful. Or maybe closer to home, your spouse, usually it's the man, does something stupid for the umpteenth time and they say they are sorry to you, and you know that they mean it, you have compassion on them, but you also know that they're not going to change very quickly because they haven't, and so you kind of withhold forgiveness, even though you know that you love them and feel bad for them. Again, that's a great example because we all go through that. You feel compassion, but don't think you're being very merciful in that moment. You might even be right in what you're doing. But let's be clear, let's raise the bar on what mercy is. Mercy is an action, compassion is a feeling. And by the way, as another quick side note, and this one has helped me a lot over the years, this also means that it's possible to be merciful without necessarily feeling a lot of compassion. So there's actually something freeing about what Jesus tells us here. And and though some of you don't like this, like you're squinting at me right now, I'm telling you, we've all experienced this where the feeling reservoir might be a little dry or low when it comes to compassion, but we've learned that we can still respond mercifully to those around us. Amen? So no excuses. Even if you don't feel compassionate, you can still act toward others in such a way that shows kindness often undeserved in their lives. (laughs) I want to be careful I say this because I... I, um... I struggle with this in my life. For all the mercy I've been shown, I'm not naturally a compassionate person. I wish I was more, and I've worked hard at it, and I'm a lot better than I was 30 years ago, but my wife would tell you that because of my leadership gift and my temperament and even my defensiveness, I, I have to fight hard for a compassionate spirit, and, and God's given it to me many ways, but I, but I fight hard for it. But the most revealing thing about that, I've told you this before, is that there will be times I'm leaving the house and I'll, we live in a two-story, I'll yell up to Kim, hey honey, I'm, I'm taking off for the day, and she'll say, I'll see you tonight, and then I'll hear her yell, be nice, as, as I'm leaving the door, which is a telltale sign from the woman who knows me the most that, that, I, that I can struggle with that. And so there are times that I'm dealing with staff or with some of you and you're in my face about something or, or, or whatever and, and I know that you need mercy. And here's the point, and I don't feel like giving it. <laughs> I, I don't feel all that compassionate for you right now. I love you, but the feelings just haven't caught up yet in that. And here's the cool thing, I can choose mercy, amen? I don't have to go with my feelings, as Bill Bright said years ago when he was alive, the founder of Campus Crusade, he said, life is like a train and feelings are the caboose. They matter, but they aren't what drives the train. What drives the train is your faith and then facts and then love for people and feelings will come and go, but they don't drive us. And so this should free you up that Jesus makes a distinction between compassion and mercy and underlines that mercy matters most. So let's add up where we've come from. Mercy is an act of kindness, often undeserved. And then we learned that it assumes a need, pain, and or sin, and this is what distinguishes it from common courtesy. And then we just learned that though many times it will flow from compassion, it's different from compassion. It's ultimately an action. And now we're ready to summit the top of the mountain because you see this third and final trademark that makes mercy, mercy is the crux of it all. And I hinted to it earlier and I'll just warn you, this is what the vast majority of people hate about mercy. This is what scandalizes mercy. It's why even many Christians don't want to think about it or choose it. And it's this, that at the end of the day, mercy is not a friend of justice. I wrestled all week with how to say this. Like I rewrote different forms of this sentence and I landed on this continually because it's just the most stark way of putting it. Mercy, at the end of the day, is not a friend of justice. We need to spend a few, time, a few minutes on this. Because you see, this is exactly what the servant in our story was struggling with. But look at verses 27 again, and then verse 30, and you'll see it clearly. Jesus is telling his story, and he says, and the king, the lord of that servant, felt compassion and released that servant and forgave him the debt. Then verse 30, he, the servant, was unwilling, however, but went and threw him, the other servant, in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So this is really cool. You have one verse that is all about mercy, the act of kindness, forgiving, letting go, and freeing this servant up. And then you have another verse that's all about justice, him claiming what was right and what was owed to him. And that's the parallel in this story. That's the reality That Jesus paints that stares us in the face that both the king and the servant had a clear right to demand justice and procure a jail sentence in that culture for what was owed them and one chose to do it and one didn't. And one is known for justice that God did not approve of and the other was known for mercy that God did. And if there's anything that we take from this story, what we need to take is that mercy is no friend of justice. And that though justice is the axis on which this world functions, without which you can't even have a civilized society, and that's what makes this point so tricky, at the end of the day, God says, I'd rather have my followers forego justice and choose mercy more often than not. And if they do that, they'll be, as was prayed earlier, just a little more like Jesus in their lives. Whoa. And if you're tracking with me at all, at this point, you gotta be thinking, because believe me, I have thought this a lot. Well, Jamie, I mean, is there not ever a time that we should pursue justice I mean, you just said that the world spins rightly on the axis of justice, so isn't there a time that we choose justice over mercy? And I want us to wrestle with that for a second right now. Because though the answer is much longer and more complicated than we have time for in the few minutes we have left before the communion table, here is one biblical value that will get you thinking about that has helped, that has helped me over the years. And it's this. The answer is yes, there are times where you and I are called by God to choose justice over mercy in our interactions with others in this world, but mostly they only come when it's the loving and or right thing to do for all involved. In other words, hang with me, when it will help an erring person assume responsibility for their actions and teach them how to be a better person like we do sometimes with our children or like we do with loved ones around us where we have them take responsibility for their actions and assume some justice and we do it because we love them and want them to grow and mature that's a good time to choose justice over mercy But please see, it stems from a loving and kind heart toward them, amen? And the reason you're not choosing mercy in that moment, but justice, is because you love them. That's a good reason to choose justice. And we do it with our kids, we do it with our family, it's okay to even do it with one another as God leads. Second reason you might pursue justice in a loving, even merciful way, and this one will be helpful for some of you here today, is when it will protect others as in clear cases of abuse. So people have said to me for years, should I show mercy on an abuser? I'm not sure in most cases you should. I think when there's clear cases of abuse, that abuser needs to experience the justice of his or her actions. Amen? Why? One, it does not help them to let them off the hook. Two, they might do that to somebody else. And so, of course, in that setting, you need to choose justice. But again, you're doing it at the end of the day because you want to see that person become a better person and you want to help protect others in your life. In other words, you're withholding mercy because of a merciful reason. And those are two good reasons for us to at times choose justice. But here's the deal, because some of you are like breathing easy right now and trying to weasel out of mercy, and I'm going to pull you back in. Here's the deal, many times this is not the case and if we're honest with ourselves, the person in front of us who has just ticked us off and we wanna see get due recompense for what they have done to us or those around us, we know that God probably wants them to be released, he wants them to be set free, they're like that servant who owes 10,000 bags of gold and can't repay it and yet we opt for justice when God is screaming to our spirit, Show them mercy. And when we do that, when you miss God's cue there, you become just like the hypocritical servant in Jesus's story, and God ain't real proud of you in that moment. Because you see, I'm convinced in the majority of the interactions you and I have each day, God says it'd be better for us to show mercy than it is to pursue justice, because it will draw them to the mercy of God and again, maybe look at it this way, and I'll talk about this in just a second when we wrap up. But but God has shown you so much mercy when He could have demanded justice. And the simple point of this story is, why don't you do that with those around you? I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. I hope you all know what I'm talking about here. Before Jesus came, there was a pronouncement of judgment on us by God based on our sin. And what was that judgment? is that your sin is a stench in the nostrils of God. That's an image from one of the prophets in the Old Testament. I love that one. You're like red, filthy rags. All of you are like sheep who have gone astray, each one to his own way. And because of that, God's judgment was, you need to exist for all of eternity, not in my presence, but in a place called hell. That's what we deserved. That's justice. And the beauty of the gospel, why the vast majority of you are here today and at our other campuses and venues is because God entered in and he changed your life, didn't he, Brian? He said to you, I love you. And, I, and, I, and, and though I'm gonna use justice by bringing freedom to your life, I'm gonna do it by giving you Jesus and he will become your justice. And I will forgive you instead of sending you to hell. And, and I will show you grace and mercy even though your sin deserved others. Man, that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's why Jesus says his followers know now how to do that with those around them. We've been shown grace and mercy. Now we need to pass it on. And yet this is exactly what bugs so many of us about mercy is the fact that in the end, even though we know God has shown us mercy, mercy is no friend of justice. Great story. Years ago, when Scott Peck was alive, he was a psychologist, a psychiatrist. Scott Peck ran an encounter group between 10 Jewish religious leaders, 10 Muslim religious leaders, and 10 Christian religious leaders. And he was trying to engender, inter, engender interfaith dialogue. And as you can imagine, the Jews brought up the horrible things done to them by Christians in history. The Muslims brought up the horrible things done to them in Palestine by the Jews. And the Christians talked about their own persecution and lack of support from these other two groups. And at one point in this interfaith dialogue, an articulate Jewish woman who'd been active for years in reconciliation attempts and and knew the issues said this very profound statement. Look up here on the screen. She said, I believe we Jews have a lot to learn from you Christians about forgiveness because core to Christianity is forgiveness. She says, I see no other way around some of the log jams that we have. And yet it seems so unfair to forgive injustice. And then she says, I am caught between forgiveness and justice. And she nails it. She nails it for some of you here today that even as wonderful, kind-hearted followers of Jesus on your best day, man, you are torn between justice and forgiveness. And I'm not down on you for that. I'm with you in that because you are right in the battle that is real. You get what the issue is. At the end of the day, we all wanna see justice and someday God says when the new heavens and the new earth reign, there will be pure, 100% unadulterated justice. Do you long for that day? No more tears, no more pain. But because there are tears and our pain right now, God's recipe for much of that, because it's what he's done for us, is to show mercy and kindness, often undeserved. It's just that when you do that, it's gonna feel scandalized. Because it goes against justice. And it's what God calls us to. So why don't we opt more for mercy? What keeps us from following Jesus' lead here? As we wrap up and head to the communion table, we got just around six or seven minutes. I want to share with you four things, rapid fire, that'll mean something to each one of us here today. You're going to pick one or two of these and go, wow, that's me. Four things that keep us from showing mercy once we understand all that we understand today. Here's the first thing. And that is that we have received none from God. And some of you go, wait a second, who who here today has received no mercy from God? Well, that's an easy answer those who have not yet embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. I mean, he's offered you mercy, but you have not experienced it yet. So if you're here today or at Cactus Venue Chapel Northridge, and you've not yet received mercy from God, if you've not yet come to Jesus, it might be hard for you to say, why in the world would I ever choose mercy over justice? And I would agree with you. And it's why our world today, have you ever like looked at politics lately? It's why our world today has very little room for mercy. There's hardly ever a scene, which is why you and I need to show it more often. But you can't show it until you get it. Amen? That's why I called this message Passing Grace On. Because until you receive the grace, you can't pass it on. So here's the cool thing for you today. If I have wet your whistle at all, if there's something stirring in you at all that wants mercy, then embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Right where you sit right now, and then your campus pastor can help you kneel, and Dan can help you here. Accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Invite him to be the leader and forgiver of your life. And guess what? You will then experience his mercy, and you'll have something to pass on. Now, the rest of these three are for Christians. Here's the second one. And that is that some of us as as Christians are ignorant of the mercy that we have in Jesus. And again, some of you say, well, how could that be? Listen very closely, because I'm telling you, this is alive and well in the church. Even though God has shown you mercy in Jesus, even though the core of your salvation is that while you were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for you, You have lived much of your Christian life since then as an obedient, legalistic, doctrinaire, uh, behavior-oriented Christian. And if you've done that, I'm here today to tell you, you got about 25% of it right. In other words, it's good that you focused on behaviors and obedience and all that. But if you do that without the mercy and without the grace, then there's a word we have for you. You're called a legalist. And we love you and we care for you and, and we're glad that you're here. But my job as your pastor is to help complete your Christianity. We have a lot of Christians today who aren't very merciful. Why is that? It's ignorance. It's ignorance and lack of experience of that mercy that has saved you. That was a great spot for an amen, so let's take another run at that. It is the mercy and the grace and your ignorance of that that has saved you, amen? It's true. And so there's some of you today, one of our our security guys said to me last night, he said, man, I was raised in a legalist environment and that nailed me last night. Maybe that resonates with you. Hang around more people of grace. Read the Bible more often and don't skip over the grace parts because like they're everywhere in it. Start to understand and experience grace. You'll become more merciful. So some have received none from God. Some are ignorant of the mercy and grace they have. Here's a third reason, and that is pride, which leads to judgmentalism and self-importance. <laughs> in other words, some of you, I can't say it any more clearly, are just prideful. It's really common in a success-oriented, educated culture like America and Scottsdale is that you have found a level of success in this culture. You've done really well for yourself and it's really easy when that happens to look at somebody who is not as successful or not seemingly together as you and kind of judge them and the second you are in that spot, you have no room for mercy in their lives. And I see it all the time. But once in a blue moon, this is actually embarrassing. Most of you don't know who my wife is because she's a very private person. She's an introvert. But once in a blue moon, she'll be on campus here. Well, she's on campus more often than that. But in a blue moon, she's on campus. And and, and she'll bump into somebody and they'll be kind of rude to her. They'll be kind of mean-spirited. Not very kind. I know it's hard to picture a Christian like that, but just go with me on it. And they're just kind of mean and, and, and to her. And, and, and then she doesn't say anything, but somebody will come up and join the conversation and say, Oh, did you know that this is Jamie's wife? And she says, It's hilarious to watch the change come over them in that moment. Then all of a sudden, then, Oh, my, it's Jamie. Well, it's good to meet you. And da da da, you know, and all of a sudden they're nice. And she wants to vomit in their presence. She never would because she's much nicer than I am. But when she tells me about that, what's going on there? It's pride, it's judgmentalism. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, should have no room for that, amen? No respecters of person. We love everybody that God brings into our presence. You know what helps me with this? I didn't share this last night, so you guys get something they don't get. I have trouble doing that. I I, I do. I I judge people too much, and I'm with you in that battle. When I'm, especially millennials, they drive me crazy. So when I'm I'm like, you know, dealing with a millennial that's in my face, I love you guys, but you're in my face, and all that, and, and, and I'm tempted, you know, to be unmerciful. You know what I think of? And this helps me. This will help some of you. I think of my son, because I love my son. And even though he's a millennial that drives me crazy too, I love him and I have a soft spot for him. And so when somebody who's not my son is driving me nuts, I think about this is somebody else's son. This is somebody else's daughter and they're loved deeply by that parent. And if this was my kid, how would I treat them? And all of a sudden a change comes over me and I find more mercy. We have to be that way toward people around us. We have no room for pride And judgmentalism. And then lastly, we got about a minute and a half, but this is huge. One of the reasons some of us don't show mercy is that we've never been broken once in our lives. Now, let me make a quick distinction here. I preach a whole sermon on this. Everybody's wounded, but not everybody's broken. Woundedness is simply when you experience the pain of this world. None of us escape that. People move to Scottsdale and try to get away from it. They don't. They eventually end up in Mayo. None of us are going to escape the pain of this world. So that's woundedness. But unless you allow your woundedness to get you to the end of your rope, unless you have the type of woundedness that gets you to a broken place before God, in which he is your only choice, your only resource, your only all in all. You will forever be a prideful, judgmental, legalistic, arrogant Christian who doesn't show mercy. It's the broken ones among us who are the most merciful. I want to be careful how I'm about to do what I do because it's very moving for me. I also don't want to put anybody in the spot. But, but, you know, Cactus and, and Venue Chapel at Northridge, I know many of you over there, too, and I know many people here. And part of what moves me the most is when I look in your eyes, and I know your story, and I know the brokenness that you've experienced, and that out of that brokenness, you're merciful. So I think of you. Now that brokenness, I know you got mercy. I think of you. Now that brokenness that brought you to us recently, you have mercy. I think. Where is he? <laughs> I uh, I think of you, not of that brokenness. His mercy. F. I think of you, not of that brokenness. His mercy. Alex, you and your wife. Sorry, I said I wouldn't mention names, but you know what I mean. Out of brokenness, you have mercy, and I could say that for so many of you. Pastor Rustin is one of my. Oh, well, we, I love all my pastors here, but he's one that I have a special heart for over at our venue. He's told his story publicly. It was out of the brokenness of alcoholism 11 years ago. He was just a stand-up drunk on a regular basis. His marriage was crumbling. His parenting was awful. Even though he was, quote, saved, he was going no place fast. And in a broken, broken time, with the Holy Spirit involved, God resurrected his life. And look at him now. He's one of our teaching pastors. Don't tell me that God cannot. You can clap at that. Venue, I hope you're clapping. Don't tell me that God cannot change us. And yet he does so through the broken parts of our life in which he meets us in. And some of you came in here today deeply wounded. You're on the precipice of brokenness. And my prayer for you is that God would meet you in that because here's what I know the fruit will be. Though it'll be painful, you're gonna be a better person someday. And we're gonna wanna be around you more often. You're going to be more likable, more merciful, more grace filled, and more like Jesus in your demeanor. So, maybe one of those four uh, are, are things that you resonate with. All I know is that the most formative times in my life, the most formative, is when God showed me mercy in Jesus. And since then, the most formative times is when people have shown me mercy. It doesn't happen as often as I would like. Let's change that. Let's be a church that shows mercy to each other on a regular basis. And let's tell lots of stories about what God does. Father, thank you for our time of mercy. What a great time to go to the communion table where we celebrate the mercy and the grace shown to us in Jesus. And I pray God that as we give thought to our lives today and how we need to up the ante on mercy in our daily experience, and even up the ante on compassion and how we feel about those around us. God, do that in us. Don't let us off the hook. Help us to be men and women who have received your grace and now pass it on. In Jesus' name, we all say together, amen. Amen. Amen.